0: Hello and welcome to the Gore Politics podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershack. Today I'm speaking with Michael Millerman. Michael Millerman is an independent scholar, teacher, tutor, author, and political scientist. We talk about Leo Strauss, the tension between the philosopher and the city, why some of the best intellectual work is happening outside academia, the crisis of rationalism, the value of returning to the great works, esoteric writing, the necessity of subtlety grounding our conceptions of the good, as well as Alexander Dugan and his fourth political theory. This was an absolutely enjoyable conversation for me, and while it can be dense in some parts, Michael is a wellspring of information and references, so the careful listener should be able to pursue further inquiry into the topics at hand, should the inspiration strike you. I hope this talk provides an intriguing introduction to Leo Strauss for those of you hearing him for the first time and an insightful discourse for those of you more familiar. Towards the end, we briefly covered the contemporary Russian philosopher Alexander Dugan, so I hope you'll stick around for that final treat as well. Michael was generous with his time and in sharing his knowledge. If you want to learn more about his work and what he's doing, you can visit michaelmillerman.ca. And now, without further ado, I give you Michael Millerman. Hello, and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm here with Michael Millerman. Michael Millerman received his PhD in political theory from the University of Toronto. Uh, Michael, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, talk about your insights as well as your work. Um, and before we get into that, do you want to just briefly um, give the audience An overview of sort of your bio, um, who you are and where you see yourself situated in the current
1: intellectual space? Sure. So at the moment, I guess you could say I'm an independent academic or ex-academic. I teach courses in political philosophy and political theory privately. I have students that I tutor and teach at all different levels from professional to graduate, undergraduate. And I recently have been collaborating with other former academics and independent intellectuals like Justin Murphy, for example. I taught an eight week course on Leo Strauss through his otherlife.co and indie thinkers community. But really, I spent the last, you know, I spent a long period of time in academia myself, going from an undergraduate in philosophy at the University of British Columbia to a master's and PhD in political science at the University of Toronto, where I was interested for basically all that time in the question of the relationship between political thinking and metaphysical thinking or between politics and philosophy. And that brought me to study Martin Heidegger, Leo Strauss, Carl Schmitt, and all kinds of thinkers who find some combination or some articulation of the relationship between politics and philosophy. They're not pure philosophers. I mean, Heidegger in some sense is a pure philosopher, but clearly there are political uh, aspects to his thinking and ramifications to his thinking. Um, So I did that for many years, but because my research interests and philosophical interests led me at some point in my intellectual biography to this Russian political philosopher, activist and ideologue, Alexander Dugin, and I started translating his books, writing about him, and I think becoming one of the experts in his thought over the time that I was working on it, uh, the problem is that he's a very controversial thinker. He's under sanctions in the U.S. and Canada. He's banned from Amazon and YouTube, Twitter and Facebook, probably. So um, as a result of all of that, uh, I paid a price academically for my associations with him and with his publishers, who were also the publisher eventually of my dissertation on Heidegger. Um, and all of that really black ended up blacklisting me from academia effectively I mean, it's uh, like I had students tell me before when I was a teaching assistant in political science that if they were to bring up uh, Jordan Peterson in the context of their class, they would be like afraid that their professors will fail them and their friends will hate them and, you know, everything will go down the tubes in a hurry. Well, Dugan is considered much more radical, much more controversial, much more incendiary than Peterson. So if they couldn't mention him, then obviously nobody there felt safe expressing an interest in anybody, any, let's say, German conservative revolutionary type thinker, including Heidegger Schmitt and Dugan, who draws on those traditions. So since I was effectively blacklisted from academia, but love teaching, uh, have very good teaching reviews, love researching and just derive the greatest satisfaction from uh, reading and discussing these books, I tried to carve out some space for myself out of the university where I can do that with people who uh, who want to study with me. So that's what I've had the good fortune to do: tutoring, teaching, and continuing to, continuing to work on political philosophy. I mean, I also have like kids that I take care of and other things that I have to do. But to the extent that I have time, that's what I um, that's what I use it for. That's
0: great, um, and uh, we will get into Alexander Dugan probably a little bit uh, towards the end of this. Um, but I have a good feeling that in order to do justice to um, Both your Strauss course that you recently taught, as well as Leo Strauss himself. We are going to probably end up spending a good bit of time on that. So, um, before we get started on who Leo Strauss is and what he's all about, do you want to just, for the listeners who may be interested, uh, talk a little bit about the course that you recently taught with Justin Murphy, who's a former guest on the show, uh, as well as uh, I would say a compatriot in terms of our, um, our, political, and philosophical interests, although Justin and I certainly disagree on a number of things. Um, and uh, what that course was like, how, how the students uh, received it, I know um, he recently uh, put out, um, uh, I guess, like a final video of, uh, of, of the, the, the students who were in that seminar giving their overview of the course, but you want to just briefly summarize how that experience
1: was and Sure. valuable from it? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So that was an eight week introduction to the philosophy of Leo Strauss. We had seven weeks of lectures, which included a recorded component and a seminar, weekly seminar component, as well as an online uh, forum with a lot of active discussion from session to session, which was great. And the final eighth session is the one you mentioned, the one that was up on YouTube. I think he calls it a pro seminar where students were able to read out some short paper commentaries they wrote about issues and topics in the course that were of particular interest to them and it was an amazing experience for me because everybody who was there was very genuinely eager to learn about Strauss about the issues that he was bringing to the table some of them had known a little bit about him before some of them not really it was their first encounter with him but for whatever reason they felt it was important to learn more about who who he is and what he stands for what he has to say So I think that we covered many facets of Strauss's thought, from esoteric writing to the distinction between the wise and the vulgar, politics and philosophy, reason, revelation, Athens, Jerusalem, many other things as well. And for me, it was incredible to hear people discussing in the breakout rooms and breakout sessions in smaller groups, how they're applying Strauss's insights to their understanding of the history of philosophy, to their understanding of contemporary political and ideological issues, cultural issues in some cases, Everybody that I heard from and everybody that I talked to came out of that class with a real appreciation for Strauss as a teacher, as an interpreter of texts, and as a deeply insightful student and teacher of the background tendencies, the sort of the the things that are operating behind the scenes of our everyday political understanding that we take for granted without ever having traced their genesis And without understanding what the alternatives were, you see, so he brings to the foreground a lot of these deep movements of thought that are shaping what's possible for us to see and how we can feel our way around the world today. He does it through the history of political philosophy, reading it super attentively and without any uh, a priori progressivist bias against the old books just because they happen to be old. So he opposed, uh, he opposed the prevailing tendencies in political science, which he thought were uh, a historicism, relativism, nihilism, or like a positivism, social science positivism, where you've already rejected the possibility that you can discover the truth about things. Uh, he felt that all of his contemporaries were reading these old books to learn about, let's say, you, know, you learn about Plato, but you don't learn from Plato. There's nothing in Plato that, you, that he could teach us, according to Strauss's contemporaries. Strauss's approach was completely different. He saw these thinkers as potentially having the true account of the nature of human things and political things. And I think that a lot of that resonated. Uh, I mean, not everybody bought into every aspect of Strauss's teaching, naturally. Some people thought he got this or that wrong. Um, for example, in his strict differentiation between reason and revelation or between philosophy and revelation, the life, the life of unassisted human reason, versus the life of obedience to divine will, the life of good, uh, sort of moral uh, piety. So some people thought that split was too radical, and there's a kind of version of rational revelation or something like that. So it was good. Even the disagreements with Strauss were very productive, very interesting, and very thoughtful. Uh, but it was an amazing experience uh, for me personally because. To me, he's such a great scholar, such a great teacher, and such a great guide to the history of political philosophy. It was amazing to share that with other uh, with other students, especially people who were just encountering him for the first time. Yeah, and um, I think he's
0: one of those um, one of those intellectuals that you find uh, when you start to discover him that is so uh, spectacularly influential, and yet. Um, embarrassingly not, not very well known, generally speaking. Um, and so I, I'm glad to hear that your, your students in the course, um, many of them prom- didn't know him before and got a good introduction to him. He's been referred to as sort of a philosopher's philosopher um, because of his approach to reading the great works and, uh, and also because of the aspect of who his uh, intended or at least ideal audience might be. Um, and so when I was first introduced Strauss uh, it was actually um, as an undergrad um, I remember hearing about him sort of in murmurs uh, from people around me one of my roommates in college who was in the same program that I was in uh, his father uh, taught constitutional law and I I remember asking him uh, if he had heard of Strauss and he just told me oh my dad said Uh, you know, he, uh, the Straussians are the school of people and they're sort of like literal interpretationists, uh, you know, and, and they think the texts have esoteric meanings. It was a very, um, dismissive type of attitude towards it. And now admittedly, uh, my roommate at the time was not familiar with it. So he had just sort of gotten this secondhand from his father, but, um, the professors that I had, at least several professors that I had in Michigan state had studied under, uh, Harvey Mansfield who, uh, as some of you may know, is a a Straussian himself. Um, And one thing that I've heard about Straussians, and uh, this is actually, I I believe, I'm quoting from Harvey Mansfield himself, was that um, there are Straussians, um, but there is no such thing as Straussianism. Uh, And so there's this distinction between sort of the followers of of the man, Leo Strauss, and what you might call um, something like a derivative ideological position. Um, So for example, there are, in in contrast, there are Marxists, right? And then there's Marxianism. uh, And those are often one and the same. Whereas uh, Mansfield is stating there that it's not necessarily the case with Leo Strauss. And I know that you personally uh, had an interest in Leo Strauss pretty early on in your career and uh, have found yourself um, separating off or breaking away from what you would call sort of the traditional Straussians, how would you describe yourself? Would you describe yourself as a Straussian? And um, as an add-on to that, do you think that there is, is there some core difference between yourself, your view of Strauss and these sort of more um, established Straussian scholars?
1: Yeah. So there are nuances among the Straussians, among the various schools and still I think I can say something general and something on the basis of my own experience here so first let me just take a step back and say that I didn't discover Strauss through a explicit well yeah through an explicit Straussian lineage so some people they have professors that they know are Straussians they assign the professors assign Strauss and it's kind of like an official an official explicit um induction into Strauss's way of thinking. So I know people like that. There were people at the University of Toronto for example who knew they were studying with a the Straussian, they knew that they were going to be reading Strauss, they knew that that's what was happening to them. In my in my case that wasn't at all what happened. I did have a first-year philosophy professor who was amazing. The class was incredible. It was better than any other class by an immeasurable distance. And When I later in life reverse engineered what made that class so good, it was because I had discovered that the people he assigned, the people whose translations he assigned were students of Strauss. So Strauss was never mentioned in the class. And esoteric writing and these other themes, they were never mentioned. But we read Harvey Mansfield's translation of The Prince. We read Alan Bloom's translation of The Republic. And his approach to the introduction of philosophy was not uh, contemporary. It was sort sort of classical. And somehow, when I later in life read these names and saw that they were all related to Strauss, I pieced together, oh, okay, that's the theme. Like That's all that I have to grasp onto about what made that class so amazing, what made that professor so outstanding. And that's where I threw myself into Strauss personally, into whatever I could read of his. And it was like, I had discovered forbidden literature in the Soviet Union or something like that because I was really eating it up in an environment that was not Straussian. The University of British Columbia was anti-Straussian, the Department of Philosophy. And all of the people around me were anti-Straussian. I had professors at the time say to me, uh, Strauss, that guy scares me. Strauss, don't read him. Find somebody more middle of the road. You know, the professors who found out that I was interested in Strauss were discouraging me um, from reading him so I threw myself into him and I thought that he was able to identify very clearly the bankruptcy the nature of the bankruptcy of the discipline of political science now it's not that it does nothing good but his assessment of it at times was really scathing so in this work called epilogue which you can find in English in liberalism ancient and modern one of the chapters he ends it by saying that the contemporary political scientists or social scientists they, uh, they fiddle while Rome burns, but they don't know that they fiddle and they don't know that it's burning. In other words, they're just operating totally cluelessly about the meaning of political science, about their own understanding of political life. So I wasn't brought up in an official Straussian environment in that sense. And what I thought and what, what is most important about Strauss to me, it's, it has changed a little bit over the years, but it's two things. It's what I say is his philosophical supremacy, which means that the philosophical life of the philosopher, the way of life of the search for wisdom is the standard. It's the peak. It's, it's what sets everything in its right perspective and in its right place. The life of the philosopher. And you could say the person of Socrates if you need a quick stand-in. But really the, the act of philosophizing is the peak. But at the same time, what Strauss always emphasizes, and this came out in the pro seminar, if you had a chance to listen to it, or if anybody who's watching or hearing this will get a chance to listen to a Justin Murphy's pro seminar from the course, what Strauss does so marvelously and importantly for us is combine philosophical supremacy or the life that sees the search for wisdom as the best and greatest good with moderation or with the needs of the political community, with a civic responsibility with well-ordered and well-measured speech and writing. So he's not so insane, like some philosophical supremacists are, that he's willing to leave a trail of destruction in his wake or something like that. And at the same time, he's not so tepid in his moderation that he's lost all spark of erotic intellectual energy and life. You know, that he's dimmed the light so much that there's nothing there, nothing left which some defenders of moderation do. He's able to preserve that tension. He lives right in the space that's carved out by dedication to wisdom and a sense of the need for moderation. And in fact, I would say that that carves out for him the meaning of political philosophy as such. It's that combination between the genuinely immoderate, drunken, insane, but incredible and good philosophical spark with everything that's required by the city, the cave, moderation, speech, living with others, justice, morality, and all of that. Now, why do I say all of that as a background to answering your um, question? So when I studied at the University of Toronto graduate uh, program of political science, there was a self-described Straussian there. This would have been my first exposure in academia not just through their writings, but through their manner of uh, like instruction in the classroom and demeanor and everything else like that, right? Where you have to put your money where your mouth is uh, to a self-professed Straussian. And in my own case, this was somebody who over the case of Dugan actually was completely betraying the principles of Straussianism as I understand them. So that was shocking to me you see that the one self-professed, the one explicitly self-professed Straussian who has relationships with many other well-known self-professed Straussians behaved over the case of a strange philosopher, namely this Russian guy, Alexander Dugin. He behaved with respect to him in a way that was completely uh I want to put it accurately and, and politely and not drag the guy too badly. But basically uh, I thought it was a total disgrace, not just personally, but again, it, it seemed like the opposite of Strauss's teaching as I had come to understand it, you know, cause let me give you let me give you a brief example. Cause this is, I think this is val- valuable. Strauss has this 1941, I think, or 1940 talk called German nihilism, where, which we taught, I taught in the course, we discussed in the course, it's an amazing Uh, thing to read German nihilism and one of the things that Strauss says there is that these young nihilists in Germany who didn't want to accept the liberalism of Weimar Republic and were totally disgusted by the leftist alternative to that but didn't have a positive program to offer that wasn't either liberal or leftist they gave a resounding no to the alternatives rejected them and we're left with sort of nothing to put in their place besides the destruction of civilization. And he says that they were failed by their teachers. They were failed by their progressive teachers. This is what Strauss says in that talk, who failed to recognize the positive significance of their passionate moral protest against equality, freedom, entertainment, the rights of man. In other words, they they were looking for something more dignified, more noble, with more depth, more substance. And Strauss even says that they were not alone in doing that because the protest against moral degradation is shared by Rousseau, Nietzsche, Plato, in other words, by these outstanding thinkers in the history of political philosophy. But the professors didn't get any of that. They they did not understand the positive significance of the students' moral protest. All they gave them back were progressivist platitudes, and they pushed the students further into unofficial channels or into the arms of the more radical thinkers of that era, the ones who, quote, knowingly or unknowingly paved the way for Hitler, as Strauss puts it. So what does it mean? It means that he blames ultimately the, the um, ham-handedness, insensitivity, and progressivism of the teachers for the faults as they were of the political, of the political faults of the students, so I have a concern that some contemporary Straussians totally do the same thing. They don't learn Strauss's lesson when it comes to this murky middle ground of contemporary quote-unquote German nihilism. They, air, they see themselves as erring so much on the side of moderation that they really fail to speak to the students who want to say no to liberalism and no to communism and who don't have a clear alternative to put up there. So what do those students do who could be given some guidance in some direction that gives them a genuine alternative to these, like a genuine way of thinking through their moral protest to the status quo? Well, those students just go to, they do now like they did then to a certain extent, go to unofficial you know, sources who may not be the best guides to these types of issues and these types of questions. So that is a big criticism that I have against contemporary um, Straussians, if they've lost the spark that for Strauss, you see from the first words he ever put on paper to the last words he ever put on paper, then they just are doing a dishonor to his legacy.
0: That's a great, uh, example there with, uh, with that paper, German nihilism. I see a lot of parallels, um, between the situation that you're describing. And I don't, I don't like to do this because people want to compare, uh, our situation to Weimar Germany so often that it's become sort of a, a trite thing to do. But um, I see a lot of parallels, at least um, in terms of the, the thought patterns um, between what you're describing is this sort of um, uh, failure of these uh, Straussians to properly hold the tension between um, philosophy and the city uh, and the um, and a lot of what's happening currently in terms of real, um, uh, vigorous, productive, uh, interesting academics such as yourself um, being either marginalized or relegated or kicked out altogether um, from a sort of traditional academic life due to the um, various dogmas and, uh, and, and factional disputes and things like that that are, are popular today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very hard not to, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to make this about your personal story. But... Yeah,
1: no. Let me just say. So when we did the course, mm-hmm. we started with this contemporaneous, 1940 or 1941, a set of remarks of Strauss's called "Living Issues of German Postwar Philosophy." Okay, so it's about the same time as the German nihilism essay. It hits some of the same themes. Those were the first two readings that we did in the course, weeks one and two, because they showed the similarity of the situation that he was facing and the situation that we're facing, and. There are a couple of really amazing parallels from the Living Issues essay as well. For example, Strauss says that um, the most important thinkers at the time were not the academics in the universities. They were just continuing on with the old patterns. They hadn't grasped the novelty of the situation. They hadn't penetrated to its depth. So he says that explicitly right at the right at the beginning that, you know, you had the academic philosophers and then you had sort of like the genuine thinkers. And that's where all the action was. Now, I don't mean to imply that everybody who's an ex-academic or a former academic, you know, is a mover and a shaker in today's intellectual environment. But I mean, something about the fact that the most interesting currents of thought are not in the university, which is too constrained to be dealing with them, I think still resonates. And then when Strauss looked at what were those movements of thought, so he looked, for example, at Spangler's cultural relativism and Weber's social science positivism, it's amazing because right on page 1 or page 2 of the remarks maybe page 3 but not further than that he says you know Spangler had treated even you know mathematics as like a cultural phenomenon so that you have like exactly what if you do any sort being of revivified uh, today pa- pardon me i said that's being revivified today yeah exa- exactly so what we have today in some sense is a very pale imitation of the very serious debates that were happening then And one of the reasons why it's helpful to read Strauss is because we can elevate our understanding of what's going on now by linking the pale imitation to its serious exposition. And then by having an extremely competent guide walk us through The serious level, where we're not comparing, you know, somebody who tweeted two plus two equals five. We're comparing the meaning of Spangler's cultural relativism, how it leads us to the analysis of old texts, why Weber's positivism does not, you know, sort us out, Spinoza's apparent refutation of the possibility of miracles, the return to political theology in Schmidt. It's like that's the real stuff right there. You know, that's where it's happening at the level of those serious thinkers. So. I mean, one reason we couldn't compare today to Weimar through and through is because students there had recourse to people like Heidegger who were alive and writing at the time. We don't have recourse to people like Heidegger alive and writing at the time because we don't quite have that level of intellectual uh, depth and, and penetration quite as represented as it was then where you can have, like I say, Schmidt, Rosenzweig, Heidegger, this school, that school, this giant, that giant, All of them trying to get to the bottom of these big questions. One other thing I just want to say briefly, uh, Mm -hmm. like I mentioned in the class, Strauss says, you know, people who recognize that we seem to have entered a time that reflects the crisis of rationalism, the crisis of, of reason, that we no longer have a rational account of the ends of a good human life, that somehow reason seems like it's become inadequate as a tool for guiding a meaningful human life. So he says, in this situation, one of the alternatives that people had open to them, well, besides like the appeal to authority, the authority of the state or the authority of God in political theology, besides the appeal to cultural relativism or to social science, uh, some of them tried to recover a form of rationalism like natural law, 17th and 18th century natural law thinking or Catholic Aristotelianism, right? Scholasticism, Aquinas. And he says, all of these movements suffered from the fact that they all were somehow derivative from the basic intellectual sources from Plato and Aristotle in a way that they'd never made sufficiently clear to themselves. So Strauss, he looks at everything going on, the Catholic reactionary thought, okay, not reactionary, the Thomism, the relativism, the nihilism, and he says, we don't have, yeah, we we can see everything that's going on, but we don't have the wherewithal to think it through well unless we go back to the source of our tradition, newly, and try to understand where we misread something, where we misunderstood Mm -hmm. something, where we made a false step. Uh, And it's amazing. I mean, people in the class, whether they were seeing Strauss for the first time, you know, everybody is alive in the 21st century, looks around them, has their own impression of where we find ourselves, and everybody seems to have regarded Strauss's treatment as super valuable in giving us Points of reference that are not just superficial, that are deeper and uh, more insightful than what we're used to.
0: So, in addressing the question of where we're at now, which is, I think, should be the guiding light for our interest in Strauss, like where we are, how we got here, understanding our history. I view, I view this as sort of. Uh, I view Strauss as building a bridge, right? There's been something that's been cut off that we've been disconnected from. When you talk about going back to our roots, um, and if we want to get to a future instead of living perpetually in the past, I mean, it does it does feel like we're just sort of stuck in like a never-ending repetition, uh, a Groundhog Day around like 20th century battles and ideologies that have just been turning and churning over over tripping over itself for like the last 80 or more years um, and if we're trying we're probably longer than that uh, if we're if we're trying to get to somewhere in the future um, and we're kind of threading that needle um, then what value does Strauss point us to in in trying to look, Look back at the past, right? Because there's this issue of historicism, and there's this issue of uh, the conventions of the day, and the fact that even you and I, despite whatever attempts we might make at sort of, that's um, for lack of a better term, freeing our minds uh, from the developmental environment and from the um, uh, from the peer groups and 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 sociological, uh, you know inculcation that we've been subjected to. um, There's a sort of limitation to that, in terms of uh, how far outside of those confines we can get. And I don't want to be deterministic about it. um, But uh, I, my understanding is that uh, through a Straussian lens, we can hope to find valuable things that may have been lost or forgotten, or maybe even unacknowledged in the first place. Um, from those old thinkers, because in fact, they're not actually so different from you and I, despite the fact that they are themselves a product of their time. Is that correct? Um,
1: yes, we Strauss would say we have, we live in a political situation, which has in common with all other political situations, certain structural features and certain, um, general considerations. So it may be that Plato and Aristotle understood what makes a political situation a political situation, or in other words, they understood the nature of political things, of political life, of the options that are available to us, of the compromises that we have to make, of the types of considerations that uh, weigh on us, better than we understand them ourselves. So he made a plausible case for that you know but first he had to oppose our prevailing prejudice that that's not the case you know that they're a product of their time that plato can't teach us anything about i mean anything genuinely relevant and true can't teach us anything genuinely relevant and true about our time because he's a product of a completely different you know we either we've progressed past then because we have a better sense of human individuality human freedom Uh, dignity, equality, and all the other uh, pieties of our time um, or for other reasons like that. But Strauss made a compelling case that they, the classics, saw the nature of political life more clearly than we do and that we've inherited a tradition of interpretation that's based on this break from them. Exactly like you said, that we can recover something valuable. Now, what do we recover in going back to them that could be helpful for us today? Well, number one, we get some terms of reference, some understanding of what we're, what we're dealing with. What are the main considerations in political life that we need to take into account? Well, for example, if we're not thinking about the various accounts of justice, right? justice, equality, wisdom, compromise, constitution as an act of legislation that combines wisdom and moderation, um, the various kinds of theoretical error that people can fall into that has a detrimental political effect all of these things. We just are on such a lower level in our analysis of political life generally. I'll give you an example. I was teaching the Republic, Plato's Republic, behind there, I think probably in that Mm -hmm. stack somewhere, translated by Alan Bloom, one of Strauss's students. So this is another thing that people who don't know Strauss well need to understand. If you look at Alan Bloom's translation of the Republic and read his translator's note at the beginning, he explains what the existing translations of Plato were like. So imagine you're just somebody who's like, okay, I'm trying to understand politics. I'm trying to understand the basic, you know, the history of our ideas. Like Plato seems like somebody important. You know, He's got this book called the Republic or Politeia. Yeah. So it seems like you could do worse than to, to read Plato in order to learn something about politics. So, okay, fine. You pick up the existing translation of the Republic and you think you're learning from Plato. You think it's like you and Plato, you and the book, here you go, meeting of minds, right? Teacher, student. And what you're actually getting is this thick intermediary layer of a translator who believes he knows better than you do and better than Plato did what Plato means and what's important. And when this translator uh, puts himself between you and Plato, all possibility of genuine understanding is lost because, for example... If Plato uses one word the same way throughout the text, but the translator just says, I, "I think this time he means this, and this time he means that," he's done the thinking for you. That's that's for us to decide. Why did Plato use the same word in this context and in that context when it's seemingly so different? Why does he say about courage that it's a political virtue or that it's political courage, but he doesn't say that about wisdom, moderation, and justice? He leaves us to fill in some blanks there for ourselves. So. Alan Bloom in his introduction, he shows you what the previous translations of the Republic were like, how misleading they were, how they made impossible a genuine education. And he did this on the basis of what Strauss taught him about a return to to a genuine study of these texts. And so, okay, fine. We now have access to Alan Bloom's work. We take it for granted. And the other Straussians, like Thomas Pangle, who translated the laws, and Bernardetti, who translated the symposium. So fine. We have now not something we should take for granted or take lightly. But okay, we turn now to... um, to the Republic. And you see right off the, right on book one, problem about the relationship between paternal authority and questioning the nature of something like justice. Because the conversation about justice only gets off the ground when Cephalus, the father, leaves the room. Okay, so somehow when the pious old men who protect the law and who have been raised under the law and who are um, sacrificing to the gods of the city are around, you can't, Think as clearly and as freely as you can when they're gone. And a million, million other considerations that are just on every page. I was teaching the Republic and literally every page, every book of the Republic, there's something that resonates as a contemporary concern, okay? Now, sometimes it requires us to think about it a little bit, like where Socrates talks about the, you won't have a just city if you don't have a community of wives and children. Nobody has uh, among the guardian class, the wives and children are held in common. But that forces us to think about whether private property, whether having something that we love because it's ours is compatible with the common good, with serving the common good. Or does property having something that is your own uh, introduce a split between your service to the common good and your service to your private good. So it's not like all of Plato's suggestions are meant like you must go literally now share your women and children uh, in common. They're meant to teach us something about the nature of political life, about the limitations of justice, what we can hope for, what we can expect. Should we have visionary expectations, revolutionary expectations that we're going to transform human nature and transform political communities so that there's no violence? Not, not, you know. Plato shows us, like this is how you have to think about these things, or this is what's valuable in thinking about them. And they're no less relevant now than they were then, or than they'll ever be what's the good life for an individual? What's the good life for a city? What can be accomplished? What's just, what are the compromises that we have to make between love of our own and love of the common good? What are the noble lies that are, what's more important about them is not that they're lies, but that they're noble. Of what does their nobility consist? What makes them noble? You know, why is it worse to tell the truth about those things than it is to lie about them? This is, these are constant concerns, in the 21st century, in the 31st century, in the 41st century, they're not going away. And somehow Plato and Aristotle, they brought them up for us in a way that lets us see them like, bam, that's the, you know, somehow the light flashed then. And then somehow it was retained in our memory. We had, you know, but then dimmed, 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 and it can be forgotten. It can be lost. So Strauss says, kind of like Heidegger in a slightly different context, let's go back to that big, bright light. And let's see what we can see under that light. Because ever since then, we've seen less clearly. Uh, or as one of the classics, like I guess, said, maybe it was Lessing, uh, even a uh, source for Strauss. Um, the, we see more than the classics did. We see more, but we understand less and we see it less clearly. You know, They saw less, but they saw it more clearly and understood more of it. So that's my little minor pitch, you know, through Strauss, we wouldn't have access to Plato's Republic in a way that we can learn from unless we studied Greek very carefully. And even then it's no guarantee if it wasn't for the influence of Strauss on his students who went on to translate the text for our benefit. It's actually like a big, um, a big project, quite an undertaking and nothing to take lightly. But yeah, Mm. I just want to say one more, one last word on this. I know it's a long answer, but it is. I think for some people, maybe your listeners have already all had this experience or not. But for me, when you recognize that there's a common concern, a truly common concern between you here now, right? Me and you here now and somebody 2,500 years ago, not only a common concern, but like that they maybe even saw it better than we did, that we can learn from them, that time sort of collapses you no longer see them as way back then, you know, somewhere far away, you know, a long time ago, time collapses, and you're just left on the plane of understanding the nature of things. So anyway, that's what's available, I think, if we follow Strauss's guidance through, uh, through these texts of political philosophy. Wow, that
0: was great. And, uh, you yourself have translated, uh, texts of, and so, uh, you have some, I would say, special insight into the way in which a translator's interpretation can color um, the text. Obviously, whenever you're changing languages, there's uh, some loss of information and maybe even some addition as well. So uh, it can it can alter alter your perspective a little bit. If you, in fact, I, I was I, as you were stating that, I was thinking like, oh, we could just have like different translations of Plato lined up together and just do close readings page by page and see the differences. Anyway. Um, That might be a fun exercise. Uh, So I was listening to Leo Strauss's, uh, he gave a speech in 1954 called What is Political Philosophy? Um, And a lot of that speech was dedicated to him sort of differentiating the line between political science and political philosophy and what to do with uh, the sort of cult of rationalism that we find ourselves in. Um, But one line um, that I pulled from that, uh, that I think might be a good segue into my next question is... Uh, Strauss stated, all political actions aim at either preservation or change. Um, and now some people, I mean, when I first read that, the first thing that I or heard that, the, the first thing that I thought about was like, oh, yeah, well, this is uh, this is classic uh, left right distinction. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a Jordan Peterson fan, maybe he would call it order and chaos. Uh, there needs to be a balance. Um, and so there's always this tension then between preserving the things that we have and changing uh, out of necessity in order to continue on to do the prosperous future. Um, and the area where I think uh, Strauss really um, uh, brings this idea home for me is this concept of, uh, of esoteric writing, um, which of, of course also implies esoteric reading as well. Um, we've mentioned it already, um, but we haven't actually uh, dealt with it explicitly here. So you want to just state for the listeners uh, what Strauss's um, discovery or rediscovery of uh, esoteric writing means uh, and what it might mean for us as readers of, of old texts.
1: Yeah. First, let me say, because I think it um, connects nicely to that passage on preservation and change. So first of all, What is Political Philosophy is an amazing um, essay. It's in the book called What is Political Philosophy? There's a shorter version that was published in an academic journal. I recommend the longer version. It has some additional features. It's the one that's in the book. Um, So what he actually says, that whole argument about preservation and change is really one of the most beautiful, I think, passages in Strauss. So he says all political action aims at either preservation or change, as you said, and we seek to preserve the good and stop it from getting worse or to change things from worse to better. We want to either improve things or stop them from getting worse. So what that means is that to want something to get better or to want it not to get worse implies some standard some standard of the good with reference to which it would be better or worse, right? Closer to that standard, better. Further away from it, worse. So he says, if all political action is aims at pres- preservation or change, and all preservation or change aims at the better and not the worse, therefore has an implicit reference to the good, our notion of the good has as a rule the status of opinion. We have the opinion that X is good or whatever, right? That equality is good or sovereignty is good or whatever it happens to be. Our implicit standard of the good has the status of opinion. And what Strauss says is that it's in principle possible that we would want to transform our opinion about the good into knowledge of the good. And that is what he calls at this stage in that essay, the task of political philosophy. Political philosophy would mean Uncovering the implicit opinion about the good that guides our judgment of political action and trying to transform it into knowledge, really thinking about what is good. Now, one of the things that happens when you do that, when you uncover the guiding opinion about the good and subject it to further inquiry, is that you transgress the whole realm that's delineated by that opinion So what Strauss says, following Plato and other classical thinkers here, is that opinion is the element of society. Political societies are held together by an opinion about the good, an opinion about the good that's instituted in their law. So law somehow formalizes the opinion about the good understood comprehensively, but it still has the status of opinion. So when you call it into question, when you philosophize, when you try to transform opinion into knowledge, you subject the whole realm of the legal and of the moral, of the customary and of the social into, uh, you, you put it into doubt, right? You wonder, maybe not, right? Maybe maybe our claim to fame is not the final word here on what's good. Authors who do that, they risk facing the wrath of the community, of the political community. So for example, in the medieval Uh, medieval communities of divine law in Islam and Judaism you couldn't just openly say well you know revelation was the world created no I think the world's eternal you know there's no creator there's no revelation Moses was a fraud or something like that right now not that the philosopher would say Moses is a fraud but you'd say um, is what we call revelation really revelation or is it an act of legislation rationally that has recourse to the gods in order to make it believable for the people. So all of this is to say that when you call opinion into question, you call the foundation of society into question. And that comes with risks, both to the philosopher and to the non-philosopher. And for this reason, Strauss said, among other reasons, philosophers, historically, some of them have tended to in their writing, which is public. I can't control who reads what I write if it's just, you know, okay, we're, this is going to be broadcast to people. So there's going to be an open audience. But if it was just you and I talking, right? A private conversation, that's one thing. But when you know the communication is going to be public, you have to have some concern for the, how it's received publicly. Again, protect yourself, protect everybody else and protect philosophy and the law, both of which have their place. So for this reason, philosophers sometimes conveyed their genuine thoughts in a way that wouldn't be publicly comprehensible, but would be comprehensible by the careful readers who could put two and two together or do even more complex operations than that and who can get through ways that Strauss wrote about in Persecution the Art of Writing, um, the genuine teaching or the true teaching. So one thing on the surface, one thing beneath the surface. And that idea that philosophers write, that some philosophers with a political concern write esoterically, it helps us understand the limitations of the city as a community that's structured by opinion. So there's no popular enlightenment. There's no general enlightenment. There's no removing all public prejudice and just injecting it with scientific bleach or with uh, illu- insight and illumination. According to the classics, that's not possible. You can't, that's a fool's errand. You can't have popular enlightenment. So uh, it teaches us something about the limits of the city. But one of the things that I always found was amazing about Strauss's idea of esoteric writing when I first. Heard somebody say this about it is that it gives us access to the whole tradition of political philosophy. Books that we would think we understood, we can now reread with an eye to what the authors genuinely meant to say. Their surface teaching can give us the impression that they're children of their time. It's like I said in that pro seminar, they may pay lip service to the prevailing beliefs of their time on the surface of their text. But if you know how to read them and how to read them carefully, you may see that they have a shared interest from era to era, from epoch to epoch. That if, if, ben, if beneath the surface, surface of their public pieties, there's a constant philosophical interest, then what Strauss says is this shows us the eternal character of our fundamental concerns. You know, they appear to change from time to time as a function of the style of writing. You know, the need to present, the need to pay lip service to the prevailing prejudices gives the impression that thinkers are a product of their time. But if you can see past that, you see that they're all addressing the constant nature of man. And suddenly you have a different configuration, you know, of problems. You're no longer thinking as a progressivist or as a historicist or as a relativist because they point to our constant fundamental concerns if Strauss is right. Yes. So if Strauss
0: is right, um, you're granting these philosophers uh, more credit than might be apparent, right? That they're not, um, that they're not blindly, uh, as you said, products of their time, but that they're consciously aware of both their time and the time that came before, and the fact that there will be people who
1: are reading them after
0: themselves,
1: Yes, definitely. A point that Strauss makes for sure explicitly sometimes that if a philosopher is writing for future generations, for potential philosophers who come in the future, okay, now Nietzsche does it explicitly, but other thinkers did it implicitly, um, that can guide how we read their texts, how we understand them and what they mean for us. Yeah. Whenever we think that a philosopher is the product of his time, Somehow, we don't see that the philosopher is, in his own way, yeah, sort of like a master of time. The philosopher, philosophers can beget eras, they can beget epochs, they can shape time. They have something about the magician, the tarot symbolism of the magician in them in that way. And we also think of time in a unclear way when we think that philosophers are products of their time. Like we don't have a phenomenology of time. When we say Mm, that we have an inherited opinion that we haven't thought through. Mm. And when we do turn towards a sort of phenomenology of time and get clear about that, then the picture looks uh, different. And then we can revisit those writings newly. Yes. And uh, would you say then
0: You know, obviously, um, none of these concerns, as Strauss would point out, uh, are um, antiquated either to Strauss's time and to now we started off this conversation by drawing parallels to the current um, political climate and environment. Um, And so would you say in light of that, that there is a certain um, negligence of subtlety to um, this claim of being too confined by the strictures of one's day and that in fact you you would want to encourage today's philosophers who whomever they might be uh whoever they might be to um take care uh and to learn the proper lessons from strauss which is that you do have a city to contend with and so you shouldn't sacrifice yourself or the philosopher to the city in the pursuit of your philosophy. Instead, you should take more care uh, and have the appropriate amount of subtlety if what you're doing is pushing for, uh, as he would say, a a kind of change.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a good phrase to negligence of subtlety. And I think that it runs throughout various facets of this problem. There's a negligence of subtlety in reading in writing, in thinking, in conduct, in assessment, in judgment. And Strauss says, he tries at least to show us what it means not to be negligent of subtlety in reading. For example, in his commentaries on Xenophon, if anybody has the good fortune to look at On Tyranny, for example, you have a dialogue by Xenophon called The Hyro where it's a poet speaking to a tyrant, and then Strauss's commentary. And anybody, I wager to say, who reads the dialogue and then reads the commentary will be blown away by what they didn't see until Strauss showed them. What it means to be subtle, careful, slow, and attentive. Strauss shows us that. That's in reading. But you can't really learn how to read without simultaneously learning how these authors wrote. So you learn the subtlety of writing. While the writing is also an expression to a certain extent, maybe not in a one-to-one correspondence, but to enough to make the point of thinking. So you learn the subtlety of thinking and of expression of concerns and all of these things. So, um, subtlety is a big, uh, virtue, let's say that according to Strauss, we're missing. We have this sort of like this sort of high minded unjustified brutalism in our reading and our writing and in our thinking, um, and when we do have subtleties, they're of the sort of trivial hairsplitting kind, and not of the kind that gets you to the uh, mysterium tremendum or whatever. Hmm. Yes. So, um, when you're, whenever
0: anyone's attempting to uh, return to the foundations, uh, to d- rediscover something, um, there is is usually a driving force behind that, which is a feeling of being unmoored. Uh, And I would say that from my understanding of Strauss thus far, that he would agree that in many ways, Western civilization in particular, which is the one we're going to talk about because it's the one you and I are most familiar with, Mm -hmm. um, has become unmoored from its foundations. Um, Not just its metaphysical foundations, but the also the implications of what becoming unmoored from those metaphysical foundations has for um, our conceptions of law, our conceptions of justice. Uh, I believe he deals with this in natural right in history. Um, and so, one of the curiosities that I found, um, you know, in my experience uh, in college and talking to different professors, was that there was no uh, interest at all in actually trying to ground these concepts uh, beyond um, the doctrine of uh, of liberal universalism. Um, Once you started to ask questions about, well, okay, then uh, if uh, if human rights is is paramount and our goal should be to expand human rights, not only within our own domain, but actually throughout the world, we need to go on a quest to liberate all the peoples of the world uh, with our Western conception of human rights. Well, then, where are those rights coming from, right? Who are we to say what those rights should be or are? Um, That was a question that I was never able to find a solid answer to. Um, And so I was just wondering if you have any um, understanding of Strauss, or even just your own personal opinion, uh, speak for either, about this situation that we found ourselves in, where it seems like a lot of the... um, a lot of the foundational tenets uh, or pieties of our day, as you called them, uh, which is a fitting word, um, don't seem to actually uh, have anything underneath them. Um, they seem to be sort of just floating around um, and, and sort of imposed almost uh, if by force, um, rather than uh, having at least a semblance of a, of a rigorous justification that they might have had in previous times. What are your
1: thoughts on that? I think it's a very important question whether we can drive any ideological or political, moral, ethical, or otherwise type of commitment to its ground. The idea of trying to ground something in our knowledge, in our understanding, I think is equally important to Strauss and Heidegger, for example, who's always trying to drive us to the fundamental ontology. Strauss does for political philosophy in a way what Heidegger does for ontology and fundamental ontology, trying to drive us to the basic underlying presuppositions, get clear about them and see whether they are free-floating constructions or whether they can be rooted or are rooted in anything. And if they're free-floating constructions, is that because that's all they can be? Or did we actually somewhere break the connection between what we think and what we say and its soil or ground or rootedness? And it is something that Strauss writes about in Natural Right in History as well, where he suggests that for the classical teaching, the standard of a good human life and the standard of the best political order is rooted in human nature understood in a certain way. So there you actually have the notion of nature, which is the importance of that notion is reflected in the title of the book, Natural Right in History. So what does it mean for something to be natural? What is the natural, what is nature, the nature of human nature, um, and all of that. So he says that if you have a certain understanding of the human nature as an ordered soul, as having a higher and a lower, you can derive a sort of teaching based on acting in accordance with our proper work, with our highest excellence. But the problem is, according to Strauss's retelling of this issue. And I think there's more to say than what Strauss says, but I wanna just say uh, this first. Strauss has this argument when he looks over the history of political philosophy. He says that the modern thinkers, Hobbes, Machiavelli, Locke in particular, Hobbes and Machiavelli most of all, they broke deliberately, radically, and very effectively with the classical tradition in reinterpreting human nature and nature more broadly. So there's state of nature teaching that we, before civil society, lived in a state of nature where there's scarcity and there's uh, brutality, short life and no guarantees, no sort of cosmic support for justice in that condition. And what Strauss brings to light is that that notion of a state of nature is very artificial, a very deliberate construction and very much an uprooting from the ground of genuine human nature. But one thing he says too which is pretty amazing that I think relates to the modern problem. I mean there's a lot there's a lot that let me let me simplify here in a way. Strauss pays great attention to this question okay grounding the claim to morality or to justice, to law and to right versus having it as a free-floating construction. That's a big issue for him. And I think it's a big issue for uh, for for all all of us we need to know are these just, fictions that we just assert them and take them as though they're true or do they have any sort of anchor in anything what you know in order to think that problem through we have to be open to some big time questions about the nature of the whole about the nature of man about what we can know about the meaning of time all of these things suddenly you're open to that's philosophizing you're open to the big questions there I do want to say that um, somehow separately from my work on Strauss when I was working on Heidegger, I noticed that there are many uh, Heideggerian thinkers who take Heidegger's destruction of the history of metaphysics, his sort of like decentering or destabilizing of capital letter concepts, okay, like truth with a capital T or however people want to think about it, essence is reified um, notions. And these left Heideggerians, they felt that the negative space that Heidegger opens up for us when he destructs or deconstructs, as they saw it, these major concepts, that negative space that we're left with, where there are no, no ground, no fundament, no essence, is actually the right way of understanding who, what kind of being we are and what kind of post-metaphysical ontology or non-ontology is necessary to underpin a democratic order. So somehow the foundation lessness that they derive from Heidegger becomes a quasi foundation for democracy because they say this foundation lessness corresponds with our ability to freely place whatever we want on that in that empty space. Now, we placed it there because it's important to us, but that doesn't make it true. It's not natural. It's not essential. It just describes who we are. We're this negative space that can posit things and then remove them, you know? So um, the book that I read about that, that was really helpful for me when I was working on comparing Dugan's reading of Heidegger to these left Heideggerians, it's by this person named Oliver Marchart. And the book, again, just for the record, that was helpful to me is called post Foundational political ontology. So, there, you know, it's a virtue of thought that there's no foundation for these left Heideggerians. Whereas for Strauss, it's a vice of thought that there's no foundation. We've actually failed to grasp the foundation uh, and we need to recover it through the history of political philosophy. Whereas for these people, you know, we've attained genuine insight into the foundationlessness of our own existence. Yes, and uh, I might also mention as well
0: uh, that you're an author in your own right, having uh, written, uh, beginning with Heidegger, Strauss, Rorty, Derrida, Dugan, in the Philosophical Constitution of the Political, um, which I failed to do earlier. But uh, so, so, yeah, uh, where were we? Um, well, Michael, uh, this has been great so far, um, but I know you're on a little bit of a, a, a time limit here, and I don't want to monopolize your time unfairly, um, so I guess I'll just start with, do you want to briefly go over Dugan or should we save that?
1: Maybe it makes sense to treat Dugan, uh, on another occasion separately, since we've mostly walked through Strauss here hmm. fairly, but let me just see if you'd like, you can take 10 minutes or so and just do a, a, sort of like a brief, uh, account of Dugan, or if you want another time, we could go into more detail. Um, Well, that that second proposal, uh, first of all, I I would happily take you up on, um, and so
0: I look forward to hopefully doing that with you in the future. But um, yeah, for right now, um, if you don't mind, um, I think we could just briefly go over Dugan because I just feel like given your situation and what happened to you, it's really unfair if we just sort of leave that as an open-ended question. Um, I know Dugan is controversial, obviously, here in the West, um, but- I wanted to get it straight from the horse's mouth and you've talked about this on other podcasts, by the way, you can, you can um, go listen to um, either uh, Jack Murphy or the Justin Murphy show, a no relation, by the way, (laughs) Um, uh, where I believe at least on one of those, he talks explicitly only about Dugan. So uh, those are great episodes. And I know uh, at least Jack Murphy has interviewed Dugan himself, I believe. Yes, Um, he has. It's a good interview and I recommend it. So let's just briefly get into uh, the man Dugan himself, who he is um, and then uh, why you were interested in him and what do you think is so problematic about, uh, about dealing with his ideas? I mean, he's really uh, arguably like the most dangerous philosopher in the world by those standards. So
1: um, let's, just, let's just briefly address that real quick. Okay, so first for people who don't know, uh, haven't heard too much about him, He's probably best known now for his idea of the fourth political theory. It's also the title of his first book that was published in English, which, full disclosure, I helped to translate. And the basic idea there was that the 20th century was a battle between liberalism, communism, and fascism, that liberalism came out on top, that when it did, it transformed into a kind of post-liberalism. So it had fought all kinds of external authorities and external hierarchies when it had a clear enemy, communism and fascism. Uh, But when it found itself as the last ideology standing, you had a sort of unipolar moment, end of history type thinking in Fukuyama, the idea that liberalism was the last great idea, that all that's left to do is to sort of spatialize it globally. So time has ended, now you just need to take the liberal teaching and um, spread it out globally. But that liberalism transformed when it had no more enemies, it sort of turned in on itself and began to destroy internal hierarchies and internal collective identities. So Classical liberalism somehow was based on the primacy of reason, still understood in a certain way. But because reason is seen as uh, higher in our internal constitution, post-liberalism had to attack reason, had to attack internal hierarchies. This is where you get sort of rhizomatic thinking, horizontal, bulbous type thinking, as opposed to vertical, um, well-delineated, ordered, structured, fascist uh, in the post-liberal sense type thinking. So liberalism became post-liberalism, a world of cyborgs and mutants and artificial intelligence and all kinds of uh, transhumanist uh, tendencies. One of the points that Dugan made often too is that um, because liberalism had tried to free the individual from all types of collective identity, it eventually wanted to free the individual from gender identity and from human identity, because to be human is also a collective identity. So the logic of liberalism is that it's a choice whether you're human or not human. It's a choice whether you're any type of collective identity. Sounds familiar. Yeah, very much so. So his analyses of these things were, I think, uh, insightful and helpful. And um, when I first heard him lecture on the fourth political theory, for me, it clicked instantly that, oh yeah, the reason people are called fascist as a rule is because the conceptual model is that if you're not liberal and you're not criticizing liberalism from the left, you can only be by default, fascist there's no other category I mean it's like boom 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 you know no nuance no subtlety as you said uh, earlier just these three categories and Dugan's analysis of that was that look uh, I declare the space of a fourth political theory where you can be neither liberal nor communist nor fascist you're not reducible into any one of those or their variants it's actually something distinct and at the time actually I thought you know what this helps me understand Strauss in part because he's not a fascist He's not a communist, and he's critical of liberalism at times in a way that you couldn't say he's liberal through and through, definitely not a communist, but it's totally misleading. I mean, absolutely really grotesquely false uh, to call him a fascist. So I'm like, you know, Dugan's right here. Why does everybody around me, when I say them t- about Strauss, think about think he's a fascist or Plato's a fascist or something like that? You know, the categories of thinking are impoverished, and really Dugan brought that out clearly. So the fourth political theory he said is like rejecting that we're neither liberalism nor communism nor fascism. And he says in his book that he says, I can't understand why when people don't, when people hear about the idea of the fourth political theory for the first time, they don't open a bottle of champagne and celebrate at the fact that they now have like a new space for thinking. And I think he's totally right. Um, I thought so at the time and I still think so. And then he also turns around and elaborates a positively constructed fourth political theory. So if it's not those things, what might it be? What could we say about it? How does it differ from all of them in terms of its understanding of time, of man, of the individual, of value of labor, of um, all of those kinds of things? So I worked on that and I thought it was very helpful and interesting and relevant because just around the time that I started translating him, Putin had announced 2011, the creation of the Eurasian Union and the fourth political theory is related to Dugan's previous ideological efforts to construct something he called neo-Eurasianism. So anyways, I continue to work on it because I thought it was extremely interesting and valuable, and I had a lot of support at the time then from my undergraduate supervisor. Um, but yeah, Dugan's known as this fourth political theory thinker, but if people just google him, uh, there's much more to the man than that. Some good, some bad, some controversial. Um he has amazing books on Aristotle, so, yeah, on Aristotle, on Heidegger, on Plato, on ethno-sociology, uh, structural sociology. I mean, he's a very, he's a thinker of great breadth. So whereas Strauss really focuses on the history of political philosophy, Plato, uh, Hobbes, Machiavelli, you know, a few thinkers very deeply, Dugan has quite a breadth. If someone were to look at his ethno-sociology volumes, for example, he covers a lot of different schools of thought there. Same with structural sociology, geopolitics. In fact, in his writings, he usually does a comprehensive review of the main figures in the field, what they have to contribute that he thinks is valuable, and then his own unique addition. So, for example, I translated one of his textbooks on international relations, and that's roughly the structure. He covers the various schools of international relations, what each of them has to offer that's valuable, and then his unique additional twist, theory of a multipolar world. Now, he's a comprehensive thinker, political philosopher, ideologue, and activist, but He's also, as I said, banned from Canada, the United States, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, many other places. Can't sell his books, can't buy his books, not on Amazon anyway. And the reason for that is he was seen as Putin's chief ideological agitator. And, for example, in the 2014 Eastern Ukraine war, Dugin was very much agitating for Russia's... um, not just taking Crimea, but all of Eastern Ukraine under no- Novorossiya. So the politicians don't like that. And as a rule, the liberals don't like to be criticized. And they're, they can, they're used to it when they can say, oh, you're a communist or a fascist. But when somebody is neither a communist nor a fascist and criticizing liberalism, and he's Russian and conservative and has a beard and reads Martin Heidegger and talks about Schmidt and all of these other things, then there's just like, they lose their uh they lose they lose it completely over him so he's a genuinely uh thoughtful insightful and amazingly interesting figure who's both controversial politically and valuable intellectually i think for understanding you know, the things that matter to us, where, how do we get to where we are? Even what I told you about post-liberalism, the simple idea that we're liberating ourselves from all collective identities, including gender and including being human that, yeah. Okay. That makes sense of a lot of things very simply, I think very like, uh, compactly. So he's good at doing all of that. He's got many, many books. I helped to translate many of them, some pseudonymously because there was too much heat at the time in the case of one uh, book in particular. Mm. And he, like Strauss, thinks that we are in a crisis of modern rationalism, that the West has reached a sort of dead end. The modern West has reached a sort of dead end. And like Strauss, he traces that to the onset of modernity's break with the classical understanding of things. And therefore, like Strauss, he returns to Plato. And he does so, I mean, this Dugan does many different intellectual operations, but one of the ones that's most interesting to me is his return to Plato to deal with the crisis of the modern political West. And he also, like Strauss to a certain extent, does this through Heidegger because Strauss said Heidegger made possible a return to the roots of our tradition. Strauss credits Heidegger with the possibility of a return to Plato and Aristotle. The way that Heidegger taught the classics demonstrated that we haven't understood them therefore that we can't have criticized them adequately or moved past them. Well, for Dugan, it's very similar because for example, not long ago, he taught a course on Heidegger's phenomenological readings of Aristotle and made the same case. Through Heidegger, we see that Aristotle hasn't been refuted because he hasn't been understood. Therefore, we can recover him. We can go back to the classics. Now, Strauss and Dugan, for anybody who knows anything about the two of them, even if just what I've said here, they take Plato differently. In different directions in a different context. I mean, 21st, 20th century America in Strauss's case, 21st century America, you know, North America in our case, versus post-Soviet Russia. They're very different political and intellectual contexts. And so you wouldn't expect the return to Plato to be identical in each case. But it's pretty amazing that you know the similarities between Strauss and Dugan are interesting and thought, thought-provoking, I think, um, because Strauss is gen- genuinely seen as very generally seen as very reserved, moderate, uh, subdued in his presentation of things, whereas nobody would ever say that about Dugan in his presentation of things. It's the exact opposite. Um, and yet that forces us to think about the puzzle of the philosopher's activity in his, in, in his particular political context. Both of them are philosophical supremacists. Both of them argue for a return to Plato, both of them get there through Heidegger. They both have a concern with the crisis of the modern West, and yet, and yet, they're so different. Um, so that's where Dugan fits in for me, mainly his, uh, his ideological analysis of the fourth political, the three political theories, and then the fourth one, his criticism of the metaphysics of modernity, his Heideggerianism, and his Platonism. And I try to, as best as I can, I try to understand what he can teach us. How, in relationship to Strauss, we can make sense of the commonalities and differences between them. And I've learned a lot studying him, but it's been a lot of heat. But it's well worth, uh, well worth it for the light. Well, thank you, thank
0: you so much for that. Um, I really appreciate it. And I know anyone who's listening who has an interest in um, in doing it or even just uh, you know toying around with these ideas. Uh, will uh, we'll appreciate it as well. I would consider you one of the foremost scholars on him at this point, um, given your translations. And I think it's absolutely shameful uh, that you know the halls of our academy can't even deal with, uh, with, with anything uh, unrecognizable to them in, in the realms of ideas, and that they would actually ostracize or push out someone who's taking those ideas and not necessarily uh, advocating for them, but simply uh, making them accessible to a wider audience, to the Western world, uh, that's absolutely shameful, and um, I think it's uh, uh, it won't reflect uh, uh, it won't reflect well on us uh, in the future. And I hope that uh, more conversations like this can continue to um, shed light on you know the situation that we really are in philosophically and otherwise, um, and uh, that more people will um, decide to tune into conversations like this one to uh, start questioning some of the assumptions because we really are in a place where our theories are just stale and we need something else to replace them uh, if we're going to have a vibrant future. So uh, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for the invitation.